A Pan Am Boeing Stratocruiser is flying from Rio de Janeiro to Port of Spain, but gets lost along the way. What caused this flight to crash in the depths of the Amazon rainforest? Welcome back to the Hard Landings Podcast, everybody. I'm Nick. I'm Miranda. And I'm Christy. I'm going to start this episode because today is January 2nd, and I'm sure you're aware that when we're recording this, but I'm sure you're aware of what happened this morning, on January 2nd, which I was thinking that tomorrow I might put out something on social medias, our social medias, just to say, so yeah, we know. Yeah. So people <laughs> stop sending it to us. Because yeah. believe me, we know. we know. I woke up to it before anybody sent anything. Well, and then someone sent so. us something on Instagram and I was like, guess what? Yes. We know. We know. We're not going to speculate on it. We're not going to spend too much time talking about it, but I will say that this is... Someone done goofed. Uh, something, somebody messed up, but this was definitely a a big, this is going to be a big learning one. That's uh-huh. that's all. This is There's going to be so much learning There always this. is with stuff like this. Yeah, but this has some big new levels of things I'm to so talk sad about. that A350 had a whole loss. Me too. And... Because it's such a good airplane, and it's not necessarily the fault of the airplane, but no, but it's a whole you mean loss when on its you record. Run into another airplane; it's not the fault of the airplane. Generally not, although there are like <laughs> things like TCAS to help you avoid. But when one is not airborne, yeah, that's a little hard. There's there's a whole mm-hmm. conversation to have about that, but also there's conversations to have about the composite. That will all happen someday when we have a lot more information on a report that we won't have for years. At least two. Yeah, and I know, and I know that that sounds like really far away. But you might remember that we've also covered some accidents that have happened since the podcast started because yeah, we've like done the this year long we enough. Started it, yeah. Right, we've done this long enough now that like reports are coming out from when these things started. So it doesn't actually feel that long to me by the time the reports come out. It does to me, dude. UA three twenty eight took its sweet time coming out. Yes, I get that, but this is a big one. I'm aware. I will say it was miraculous that everybody got off the three fifty. That is, I was surprised. Incredible with the fireball that and, was posted. I was like, everyone got off of that airplane. Good job. And again, that means and no using less than half the exit, right? Which is and, good. And th- like I said, we're not going to speculate on anything <clears throat> about what happened. But I will say, take away that, if nothing else, from what happened. That the aviation industry is so safe compared to what it used to be because this would been completely disastrous this could have been catastrophic in in decades past Uh, as catastrophic as it looked this showed exactly how safe the aviation industry actually is today we literally just talked about the episode where we talked about the worst evacuation probably in yes yeah we did yeah Yeah. the the textbook how not to evacuate an aircraft yeah this one actually went really well number that was hold on no episode 101 all right people so take that with a grain of salt this evacuation went well i feel horrible about what happened for the Coast Guard. I'm very sorry for families, friends, and everything there. And that is... There's a lot of solace to have in that, but in the fact that people got out is... Including the captain. Yeah. How? Yeah. that That's pretty miraculous on its own. So this will be a very big learning tool. Yes, there was tragedy, but there was also so much good in this. And... There's going to be a lot to learn. A lot to learn. It's going to be a long road. But enough of that. Patrons to thank. Yeah, we have new patrons. We got a few new people. Thanks to Maria Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and Dave and Mem. Yeah, thanks. Thank you for inadvertently teaching me new currencies. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Which, fun fact, the currency we looked up for the first one, the the last person who signed up has that currency. Oh. Oh, cool. Well, (laughs) welcome to the fam. Welcome, welcome. And then... Welcome back, Sahar. Although that might just be a, a payment problem. Sometimes yeah. it is, and it'll be like, "Oh, you have a new patron." I'm that like, just happens sometimes. I wish it would keep track of that stuff and not send us notifications. I know. I don't. Sometimes it won't, but sometimes it's it. Yeah. It was like three or more days or something than that, like yeah, that, yeah. and then it's like, "Oh, they're new," but they're not. They're not. Also, uh, newsletters out. I didn't f- up. Like I said, I might in the past two episodes. So. Yeah. Uh, congratulations to myself. So yeah, it came out at the beginning of the month. <laughs> yeah, it did. Hey, <laughs> and I didn't forget only only because someone answered it because I put it on the website first and they answered it. I was like, oh right, I gotta do that. I gotta actually send that. So if you want to look at the 
newsletter. It is currently on the website. We will be doing trivia questions probably next episode. Yes. So probably. keep that in mind. Yuppers. Do not feel obligated to provide a dissertation for some no. of the answers, you but you may cough, follow the lead cough. of some people. Yeah. Leo. Leo. <laughs> Which, don't mind a good dissertation. Listen, Lisa, it's fine. Also, I updated our merch page, so everything is up to date. Yes. There's some stuff that I had to take off. I replaced with new stuff. So Are there should... PJs? No. <sighs> Diggity dang it. They don't have anything available. That is the wise. one thing I want more than I know. <laughs> <laughs> one of these days. One of these days. So, if you would like some merch, high key suggestion. Go check that out. Yeah. Also, unless you, we just said your name, everyone is updated on their discounts for merch. Yes. Except those three people. <laughs> yes. So you should be able to use your discount code as a patron if you have signed up before those three people. So there you go. Yeah. Hopefully I, by the time you listen to this, those, those three, three people yeah, also you probably have your code in, in hand. So hopefully. Also, keep in mind, postage-wise, because Paige is currently not working for us, getting stuff sent out is a little more difficult than it normally is. Twill happened. Twill happen. We'll, we'll get around to it. Twill happen. Also, keep in mind, Nick and I are getting married in less than three months. Yeah. So, many a thing happening. But, twill happen. Promise you that. I just be just... patient. So maybe remind us every once in a while. <laughs> yeah. I just said that sentence out loud. I know. I didn't like that. It's okay. Oh, wait till it's like a month out and then a week out. Yeah. That is when it really hit me for Connor's wedding. Yeah. So... Be over before you know it. <laughs> Can we go on the cruise now? No. Oh. <laughs> you just got back from a cruise. Yeah. Which, we got a whole nother trip we're going to try to do between now and then. Which you will get to hear all about my cruise in the post episode if you are so inclined. All right. Yes. What are we covering today, Nick? Today we are covering Pan Am Flight 202. You know, it's going to be a good one when I had to text the group chat. This is going to be a trip. Yeah. Also, thanks to Kevin. Yes, thanks. For the third Strato Cruiser. That you have recommended to us. Yes. And the Can fourth, you chill? Fourth or fifth one that we have covered. And if it's a Stratocruiser and Pan Am, then you know. It did not <laughs> go well. It was a bad story. It was, it was, it was, I'm sorry, but Stratocruisers and Pan Am did not mix. No, they did not, turns out. They were not a good mixture. So thanks to Kevin. Thanks, Kevin. Anybody else on that one? All right, Kevin, are you done with these recommendations? Are you, are you done with the Stratocruiser? That was the last Stratocruiser. I'm, I'm going going through the whole list just to make sure it is the last strato cruiser on our list currently i mean good we've had enough <laughs> of them no this uh tell pan me how am, you really feel pan am always a doozy Please. i feel like every time pan am comes up on our list it's always a doozy and now we're just doing so many of them in a row please tell me this is not from california to hawaii or hawaii to california <laughs> no oh okay because the last two were thankfully your, no the trailer that i put in the group chat was boa constrictor yeah so there's only a couple places it could be <laughs> so, so there's some things going on here i know that's <laughs> way to preface this okay this accident occurred on april 29th of 1952 that was a hot minute ago we're doing these all out of order because the last one i think was 55 not our fault no, that's just how they were The one from 1955 referenced this crash. Yes, it did. Yes, it did. Because it said, hey, this thing has happened three times before with Pan Am. Yeah. This is one of them. Yeah. So, anyways, not to give away too much. Again, this is a Boeing 377 Cruiser. Big quad engine piston Loud airplane. Loud airplane. Big bubbly, fumbly, double deck, weird lot of window airplane. It's got four power packages. Yes. Uh, power God. packages. Turns out that's relevant. This one had the tail number November 1039er Victor. This was a flight from, are you ready? Buenos Aires to Montevideo to Rio de Janeiro to Port of Spain to New York. Now the boa constrictor makes sense. Yeah. That means it happened in South America. <laughs> Whatever happened, How'd happened guess? in South America. Because <laughs> there's not boa constrictors in New York. <laughs> I wonder how you figured that out. <laughs> I mean, there probably are, but... In zoos? Yeah. They or... don't naturally live there. No, but there are also people that do weird things in New York, so... Yes, but this is not a snakes on a plane situation, as no. people in the group chat thought. No. This is a crew of five, by the way. Why? You'll see. The captain for this flight was Albert Grosserth. He was 27 years old. What am I doing? I know. But how many hours did he have? 
8,452. Holy He had done nothing but fly from the time he could fly. (laughs) (laughs) Guys, it's 52. It's 1952. Yeah, I know. He flew in the war. The war! The war! The war! Yes. I understand how he got all those hours. But still, was not expecting that. Did he? Because at 27, he would have, like, barely been flying in the war. He would have been 20. Barely flying in the war. 20. In 1952? Yeah. In 1945, he won the world at. Right, that's when it when ended. The world ended. That was when the, the world war, war ended. That was when the war ended. <laughs> when the so war. in order to like get your pilot's license before the war ended, you know how many kids snuck into the military oh, at like sixteen. Oh, I know, I know, I know. So, anyways, eight thousand four hundred fifty-two hours, of which seven hundred and thirty-five were on the Stratocruiser, which not a huge amount, but the Stratocruiser was still relatively new. Okay, fine. Then there was the first officer. Let's talk about him. L. A. Penn Jr. was thirty-four years old, so older than the captain. Because that is one of the youngest captains I think we've ever talked about. I think it's the youngest captain. No. No. No, definitely not. Okay. But it is one of the youngest we've talked about. It has to be. The first officer had 9,099 hours total, which is more than the captain. Also had 1,134 hours on the Stratocruiser. Also more than the captain. Riddle me that. Also, none of this matters. No, it doesn't. There was a flight engineer. As I would assume so, yeah. Yes. The flight engineer was Paul Stilfen, who was 37 years old. Was the oldest one in the cockpit, at 37 years old, by the way, and had 6,991 hours total, of which just 216 were on the Stratocruiser. But still a pretty decent amount of hours overall. There was a navigator. As I I would guess. Yes. Yeah. Who was John Powell, who was 34 years old at the time, and had 8,980 hours total, and that's all I know. Oh, okay. Don't know any other things about those hours. And then there's a radio operator. (laughs) Hello, operator. Which is the fifth person. And that was Leroy Hotsclaw. Oh, God. I forgot Leroy <laughs> Jenkins. No. <laughs> I set that one up on purpose. <laughs> now, Leroy Hotsclaw, which that is quite the name. Hotsclaw. H-O-T-Z-C-L-A-W. Hotsclaw. 32 years old. And that's all I know. Oh, okay. They don't track hours for radio operators, and I don't imagine they would. I'm surprised they still had radio operators still. Yeah. It was kind of strange. So that was the thing. The flight had departed the ramp at Buenos Aires at 3.26 p.m., but had returned to the ramp at 3.34 p.m. for a maintenance issue. Uh Uh-oh. Leaving the ramp again at 3.48 p.m. The flight departed Buenos Aires finally at 3.52 p.m., which actually wasn't really that late in reality, about a half an hour. The flight to Montevideo was uneventful, which is in Uruguay, by the way, in case you're wondering. For those Is that that actually how you say their country? Yes. Yes, Uruguay, yeah. I always said Uruguay. Yes, and a lot of people say Uruguay. No, it's none of those. It's Uruguay. I'm not the only one who mispronounces things on this episode. (laughs) Hey, leave me alone. (laughs) It's okay. Rude. I'm doing pretty well here. Give me some credit. No, that's why I asked if that's how you actually say it. But that's uh, when it comes to like Latin rooting language, I'm usually decent. It's phonetic. Yes, usually. If you know what phonetic means in each one. You also do weirdly well at Chinese. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> they spell things relatively phonetically, though, if you know how they're spelled. Yeah. So if you know Japanese how that too. is spelled. Yes. Yeah. If you know what the phonetics are of Chinese, they're spelled pretty phonetically. Anyways, continuing. The flight then continued on to Rio de Janeiro, normally arriving at 10.02 p.m., which to me, the distance between Buenos Aires, Montevideo, and Rio de Janeiro is not really that far, but I mean, it kind of is. Especially when you're talking about 1952 and big piston airplanes. But it shocked me that they left at like 4 p.m. and got in at 10 p.m. Wow. Six hours? <laughs> yeah. I mean, don't get me wrong. There's a stop in the middle of that. But still, like the distance between those just doesn't seem that far to me. Wow. Yeah. Anyways, there was then a routine crew change that happened in Rio to the accident, accident crew, crew, of course, mm. since we are continuing the story. 41 passengers joined the nine-person crew, for a total of 50 people, on the flight to Port of Spain, which is in the Caribbean, in case you're wondering. Used to be part of Spain, which is why it was called Port of I mean, Spain. Yes. And now probably is its own country. It was right. a major pirate destination. Yeah. Which you can hear more about on the post episode. Yes. Did you, you didn't go to Port of Spain, did you? No. But... No, but I went to the pirate museum. <laughs> oh, yeah. I forgot and they about that. Talked about it. <laughs> so you can hear more about that later. The flight departed the ramp at Rio at 11.17 p.m., middle of the night, 
The flight was to be on an IFR, Instrument Flight Real Flight Plan, that called for and was cleared as an off-airways direct route from Rio to Port of Spain. So literally, they were like, take off, fly a straight line to the other place. Okay. To Port of Spain. No, no heading? That was it. None of that? No? Just, just fly a straight line. A heading 343. Three. Yeah, that's oh, pretty okay. much it. Just Stay, and then stay just, on that heading. Just, just go there. Yep. Just, go. just straight okay. there. At an altitude of 14,500 feet. And the distance, so they are literally going pretty much from Rio to Port of Spain. It's almost directly straight north. Like 343, three, think about it. It is... Only slightly northwest. Okay. It is almost directly north. The flight was initially to climb to 12,500 feet for crews until the checkpoint at Barreras, then climb to a new altitude of 14,500 feet for crews until the checkpoint at Santarem, then climb to a new altitude of 18,500 feet for crews to Port of Spain. So this is called step climbing. And this was typical. This was a lot more typical back in the age of piston airplanes where they would make what I would call relatively drastic altitude changes over time mm-hmm. versus we still do altitude changes. And it's not that they're not drastic, but you can't really tell as much when you're up at that, those altitudes up above say 30,000 feet. But typically this is done on long haul flights. As you burn off fuel, you're able to climb a little bit higher and gain a little more efficiency out of the airplane and go for a longer distance. So that is a, the reason why they, were changing altitudes or planned to change altitudes regularly. The estimated flight time from Rio to Port of Spain was 10 hours and 30 minutes, which would be a lot shorter these days. Yeah. Quite literally, probably half. Wow. That's so far. I don't even know if they would fly this flight. Probably not. Yeah, somebody might. You never know. Time to consult the internet. Not directly. Okay. No one does it directly. That's fine. With a stopover prior to Trinidad and Tobago, it's 15 hours. What? What? With a stopover. Yeah, but then you're going to be on that ground for a long time. I don't. I think it only takes about five hours to go between. Flight the time is six hours and eighteen minutes. There you go. Okay, so still, it's a, it's pretty close to half. We're going to say it's, it's, it's somewhere far less than ten hours, ten and a half hours now. But that is the reverse direction. That was Port of Spain to Rio. Whatever. Still. Okay. Anyways, after departing the ramp, the aircraft taxied toward runway three two at Rio, stopping on the taxiway facing southwesterly. So the airplane was facing southwest. At that time, the four powerful engines were run up to check all functionality before takeoff. So they just run the engines to a higher RPM, sitting still. Make sure nothing breaks. Right. This is still common practice in most piston airplanes because of the they are... Yeah, it's <laughs> mostly general aviation yeah. craft, but yeah. Because they have a lot of... I would call... They're not necessarily antiquated, although kind of, but old system design still built in, like carburetors. There was that time <laughs> your dad ran up a plane and it caught fire. Uh-huh. <gasps> yeah. That's why we do run-ups. Yeah. So that doesn't happen in the air. I was going to say, that. I mean, we do a run-up with Brendan every time yeah, yeah. we fly with him. Yeah, as you should. Just checking things. And make sure your plane doesn't catch fire. Yeah. Things you just won't do in modern airlineners. Because uh, Yeah, you, you don't go do off to the side and do a run-up before you <laughs> no. have to take off at a 7.37. No. This definitely doesn't happen. 11.30 p.m., the flight advised that they would be returning to the ramp for a maintenance issue. Uh-oh. Yet again. Didn't they already have a maintenance issue? Yeah, that was at their original... Yeah, their, but was it the origin. same maintenance issue? Don't know. The aircraft didn't return, however, to the ramp. Instead, oh. taxiing toward the southeast to the end of the runway a short time later. It then remained short of the runway for about 10 minutes, just there. This is observed by people, by the way. The aircraft then entered the runway facing northwest and took off. Okay, bye. And they only changed heading slightly from runway heading, and then they were just going literally straight north. <laughs> 12.06 a.m., the flight advised via radio that they had taken off at 11.43 p.m. and were estimating being a beam Palmyra, or Palmyra. Palmyra? Yeah, Palmyra, Brazil, at 12.26 a.m. Wait, so they took off anyway? Yeah. Yes. They left. Even though they had maintenance as you? Whatever it was, they sat there for another 10 minutes and somehow figured it out. So they thought. Oh, uh, okay. They're on this podcast. They're on this podcast. That oh. makes it sketch McGetch, my dude. <laughs> Anyways. Sketch McGetch. I don't give away much because there's just that the story was very undescriptive and not much to talk about. The flight made their next radio call as being a beam Palmeira at 12.25 a.m., a minute earlier than estimated, and that they were estimating being a beam of Belo Horizonte in Brazil at 12.54 a.m. It's only a short time later. 12.57 a.m., the flight reported being a beam Belo Horizonte and estimated being a beam Montes Claros, Brazil, at 1.44 a.m., at 1.48 a.m., the Porto Alegre, Brazil, radio station relayed a message from the 
flight, stating that they were a beam Montes Claros at 1.45 a.m. and estimating being a beam of Barreras, Brazil, at 3.10 a.m. So they relayed that back to Rio. Because Rio has a company office, and that's where they're kind of keeping track of the airplane, making sure that, you know, it's 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 doing okay. It will not be doing okay. Very shortly. Now, I shouldn't say that because in terms of actual time in the air, it wasn't necessarily very shortly, but it, within my notes, it happens fast now. All of these radio check-ins that I just mentioned from the aircraft were also reported as being at 12,500 feet off airways and flying in VFR, visual flight rules, conditions. So there was nothing of note for weather. 3.16 a.m., a message was relayed from the Cayenne, French Guyana radio station to the Belém, Brazil radio station, and then finally to the Rio station, that the flight had reported being Abim Barreras at 3.15 a.m., flying at 14,500 feet, as planned, in VFR conditions, and was estimating reporting a beam of Carolina, Brazil, at 4.45 a.m. This, however, was the last time that the airplane was heard from. Mm. The flight did not make any more reporting messages. The arrival time for the flight to reach Port of Spain came and went, and there was no airplane. At that time, a missing aircraft procedure was initiated. It took until May 1st, which I believe was two days later, for the aircraft wreckage to be found. It was found spotted from the air by a U.S. Air Force search and rescue unit that was just searching Brazil, the jungle, nearabouts where actually they, you know, along the route where they were between their last reporting point and the missed reporting point, of course. That's why they had them, because right. it was, that narrows down things a lot before we had, like, GPS. The position of the wrecked aircraft was 282 miles to the north-northwest of Barreras, the Barreras checkpoint, 36 nautical miles south-southeast of the Carolina reporting point, which was their next one. So they were close. They had almost made it to the next reporting point and didn't make it there. But 887 nautical miles from Rio de Janeiro. Mm. The aircraft was completely destroyed, super heavily, in the forest. And it was quickly found that all 50 on board had perished in the accident. Wow. Nobody made it out. There was no stories to tell by anybody, which is unfortunate. And really, there's there's nothing else in the story. When I said there was nothing, there was nothing. They had the reporting points, and then when it didn't show up. Okay, well, this investigation was performed by the Brazilian Air Force. I was going to say. Yeah, that's what they do. And the Civil Aeronautics Board. Yeah. Hey. It was ultimately the CAB who published the report. Yeah, bet you didn't expect that one. Mm-hmm. Well... <laughs> Maybe I did. The CAB was notified two days after the accident that the wreckage had been located in a dense jungle in Paris State, Brazil, and one investigator, one, singular, yep, investigator, was dispatched immediately and was authorized to act as investigator in charge. But the Brazilian government was also conducting their own investigation, performed by the Brazilian Air Force. So they're like, you can be in charge of your investigation. Right. You're the only one allowed here. Have fun. Right. The U.S. Air Force had conducted an air search operation, which was how the wreckage was found, and they determined that there were no survivors, and the only way to reach the scene would be an expedition. Yeah, through the jungle. Using a land plane airlift for 523 miles from Belém to an airstrip in Aragua, Sema, and then an amphibian airlift for 85 miles to Lago Grande, where they would establish a base camp with a subsequent 35-mile hike to the wreckage. Which is not a small amount. That is a multi-day. That's a very big hike. That is a multi-day trek. That seemed like a little. That's a camping trip. Yes. That seemed like a little ridiculous of a hike, and they were eventually able to make a helicopter work for that distance once they could get one in the area. Which is pretty miraculous, because in 1952, there weren't many of those. No, they had to fly in the parts of a U.S. Air Force helicopter. Yeah, I'm not surprised. This had to be like super rudimentary helicopter. But they still had to blaze that 35-mile trail using the help of the natives in the area. Yeah. They still had to hack their way through the jungle for 35 miles, but we're not there yet. On May 6th, the two governments were able to come to an agreement for a joint investigation under accordance with ICAO Annex 6. I forget which annex. Mm-hmm. Per the ICAO. Yep. On May 7th, investigators met with the Brazilian Boundary Commission and the Indian Protective Agencies to learn about the jungle and what equipment was needed. And it was at this time that they learned the wreckage was in an area known to be occupied by hostile Chiapas Indian tribes. Okay. Don't want that. I think that's how that's pronounced. And they were advised that anyone going into the area should be well-armed, always travel in a group, and do not attempt to make contact with the tribe. In fact, they were advised to fire upon the tribe if they encountered them. Lovely. Wonderful. It gets worse. Yes. Also, please be aware and be protected against wild boars, yeah, black leopards, mm-hmm. yeah, jaguars, uh-huh, bow constrictors, yep, 
and vipers. Yep. Yeah. This is the, the jungle. The Amazon. So apparently jaguars isn't pronounced jaguars. What? Jaguars? Yeah. Jaguars? There's no I. No. That's how I've always pronounced it. I understand why you would say that, <laughs> but I also understood why Caitlin was like, that's not how you say it. Anyway, so <laughs> the jungle. The jungle. Be prepared for the jungle and and angry people, I guess. Yes. That is not the most ridiculous sentence I'm saying today. Well, it, it might be the first. The second one, anyway. Anyway. Oh, and no one's ever explored this area, so good luck. Great. It's even in an unexplored territory. Yes. It's great. It's even better. The next day, two more CAB investigators arrived, and the team divvied up who would be in charge of each part of the investigation. Now, I don't detail it, but along the way, other representatives from different organizations mm-hmm. become involved. So, Boeing, Pan Am, the Airline Pilots Association... There's a whole host of people. Okay. As is to be expected. Meanwhile, the base camp at Lago Grande was set up, and while flying over the wreckage, they observed parachutes in the trees. Which is interesting. Around the wreckage. Weird. Turns out a group of civilians, backed by the former governor of Sao Paulo, dropped into the wreckage and created a clearing for a helicopter four miles from the wreckage. Oh, that's nice. Which is pretty, pretty amazing, actually. On May 12th, many personnel made it to base camp at Lago Grande and set up shelter in a rented mud hut. This is what we're working you with. You can people. rent a mud hut <laughs> in the I, Amazon. That's not something I ever thought of renting anywhere ever <laughs> nope. or even knew existed. That's the worst kind of Airbnb. <laughs> yeah, I never even knew such a thing existed. So the U.S. Air Force helicopter was delivered and was assembled in a day. Hmm. That is foreshadowing. You're talking about. Oh, no. <laughs> I mean, you're talking about the Air Force. Yeah. And arrived at the base camp on the 13th. More base camps were created along the 35-mile footpath to the wreckage, each at a site of water. Eventually, they set up the advance camp at the clearing the parachutists had made, which will now be known as the parachutist clearing, which is four miles from the wreckage. Everyone got a, a map in their brain? Good, because there's no map. Great. On May 15th, everyone made it to the clearing for the first time using the helicopter. But the helicopter developed a vibration. Lovely. Because it was, you know, built Maybe in put the day. To, yeah. <laughs> Inspection revealed that the entire tail cone was distorted. Oh. Lovely. Probably nice. due to unloading the helicopter pieces without lifting lugs and the forward bearing of the tail rotor drive overheating badly. Fair enough. The U.S. Air Force did not have the means to repair or replace the helicopter. To make matters worse, somehow, for reasons unspecified... The trail between the clearing and the wreckage was unable to be completed, and the group of 25 trailblazers were instructed to proceed swiftly to the wreckage without blazing a trail. So they were just to just walk right through. Yep. There's 25 of them, and that group contains journalists for some reason. Okay. I don't know why. Investigators decided to use the clearing as a base for now and would create another at the wreckage if a suitable water source was found there. The distance between the two was four miles as the crow flies... But between them was an entire mountain range. Oh, 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 oh. (laughs) Yeah, it just gets worse all the time. The Tamaku Mountain Range, in case you were wondering. That afternoon, one person from each represented party, each with a canteen of water and a small supply of U.S. Air Force rations, left to try to reach the wreckage. They took a very circuitous route over rough and rugged terrain, often using guide ropes. All but eight were defeated by the terrain and heat and returned to camp. These returners included the medical officer who suffered a heart attack, ironic, and a parastate police official who was seriously injured in a fall. It quickly became evident that the eight remaining would have to be out overnight and possibly suffer from water shortage. They were instructed over radio to use smoke bomb signals once they reached the wreckage if they needed the crippled helicopter to make an emergency water drop. So, hate that. They eventually found that the shortest practical route was seven miles, and they established an overnight camp along that route. The eight investigators met the six members of the parachutists, who were out of water. Great. But they joined forces. Ariel Cruz had determined that there were four main sections of wreckage in the jungle. When the eight investigators and six parachutists reached the main section of wreckage, it was apparent that others had been there before them and disturbed the wreckage. That sucks. But also, there's nothing you can do about it in the middle of the Amazon. No. Yep. Nothing. On the 17th, the group of 14 were joined by those 25 trailblazers who were also out of water. Oh, that sucks. That sucks even more because some of the water brought by the original eight investigators had disappeared. Oh, what? (laughs) How? Talk about making a bad situation way worse. That's why there's actually a lot. We don't talk about this a lot, but there's actually a lot of control around how 
search and rescue and investigations take place these days because of situations like this, where it's like you, you shouldn't go into a situation making it worse because you put yourself in a bad place. Yeah. That's why there's actually a lot of controls around how this works now. Yeah. Cause you can only go three days without water. Yeah. So things are going great right now. Anyway, this section of wreckage had the remains of the fuselage from the cockpit to the pressure bulkhead, the right wing, engines three and four with the propellers, and the landing gear. Investigators deemed it impracticable to attempt to reach the other wreckage due to the lack of trail, supplies, communication, and protection. Fair. They lit an emergency smoke bomb indicating the need for water. The delivery of water proved very difficult and only partially successful due to the hundred foot tall trees. Yeah. Great. Because it's the Amazon. It's the Amazon. And the unstable air. And the lack of a working helicopter. It works. Barely. Kind of. (laughs) It was deemed that further helicopter visits would be too dangerous. Yeah. Yep. The group decided to split tasks with some focusing on burying the bodies, some gathering personal effects, and the rest identifying parts of the aircraft and recording their distribution and condition. The wreckage was at an altitude of 1,300 feet on the side of the Tomonaku mountain range and was lying in an inverted position. The wreckage area was a large burned out hole of jungle about 100 feet in diameter, indicating that this was a near vertical descent with a horizontal attitude. So they fell flat. Yeah. This deduction was supported by a baby tree of four inches in diameter, vertically piercing the number four engine cowling. Lovely. I can't imagine what state the bodies were in. I don't Given that information. No. Also, the bodies have been sitting in the jungle for two weeks. Over two weeks. Yeah, by this point, yeah. I did mention jaguars. Yeah, I was going to say, there was probably some predators. Yeah. Investigators determined the aircraft probably burned for many hours as evidenced by the melted aluminum structure, which then re-solidified into unrecognizable globules and masses of metal. Which is pretty hard to do unless it's very hot for a long period of time. Yeah. The following day, all Pan Am personnel were instructed to return to base camp, and any government personnel wishing to stay would have daily drops of rations provided. But given the lack of water, everyone just decided to go back. I don't blame them. I don't either. Two evacuation flights were made from the parachute is clearing, but the condition of the helicopter was uh, worsening. Poor. It would usually only take seven flights to get the investigators out of the clearing, but it took eight due to the condition of the helicopter, coupled with one journalist developing appendicitis. Awesome. That sucks. This investigation. (laughs) We're not even at the investigation! Well, this uh, search and rescue slash investigation is quite the event. That's why I'm describing it. Also, they gave it all to me. This so. is the definition of don't make a bad situation. Worse. Yes. And a Pan Am employee injured their foot. That, that's it. Okay. okay. It became apparent that the helicopter could not continue, at which time the leader of the parachute has pointed out that a Brazilian helicopter had dropped them in the first place. Maybe it could assist in the evacuation. But it was Why was that not the thought in the first place? Because it's small and can only take one passenger at a time. Fantastic, but it works. <laughs> I like the hanky-danky one. And it's there, and it wasn't put together in a day. (laughs) It was decided that was also not practical, so the original helicopter would keep being used, but would bring power saws. Lord. It would bring power saws, axes, and machetes so that the remaining parachutists and journalists could clear the clearing further to allow for a runway for light aircraft. The last evacuation flight on the 18th resulted in two investigators still left in the clearing. Sorry, sorry, guys. Did they die? No, but they're there for a while. Poor them. God, (laughs) don't make a bad situation worse. Uh, One is Brazilian and one is American, if I remember correctly. Great. Oh, speaking, I imagine that those two had to have become like best friends at that point. Or maybe, or mortal enemies. (laughs) On the 19th, the Brazilian Air Force took over the base camp and responsibility for evacuating the two remaining investigators. All Americans were ordered to return to Belém. Okay. There, they met to discuss further investigation, at which point they established it would need more and better equipment. But the Brazilians were opposed to continuing it at all. I mean, I kind of don't blame them. They're like, look, you're in our land, and on top of that, this is so hard. Like, we are just risking life and limb trying to make this happen. Maybe you should stop. Sorry, but maybe you should stop. Guess what? Nothing continues to go correctly. Of course. On May 23rd, a privately owned light plane was landing on the newly prepared landing strip at the parachutist clearing. Yes. However. <laughs> of course there's a however. It was involved in an accident. Yeah, of course <laughs> The Brazilian Air Force dropped off repair parts, and the two investigators left in the clearing repaired the aircraft. Okay. Nice. Good for them. I guess. When you want to get out, you figure it out, right? And they finally flew out and arrived in Belém on the 28th. This is now a month after the accident. Oh, Lord. 
The U.S. Air Force, meanwhile, had photographed the entire wreckage area from the air. On May 31st, the investigators were released pending possible reactivation of the investigation on scene. The following two and a half months were spent getting authorization from Brazil for a second expedition. The Brazilian Air Force had released the wreckage to the Director of Civil Aeronautics, who had facilitated getting the landing strip near Lago Grande upgraded to handle an airlift, as the amphibian airlift could not operate during the dry season. During this time, a 35-mile jeep trail was cut in the jungle from Lago Grande to the wreckage to facilitate the removal of bodies and personal effects. On August 15th, the CAB received authorization to continue with a new expedition. The new crew of investigators and observers were furnished all the applicable information about wild animals, hostile natives, insects, diseases, and the 100-degree days and 45-degree nights. Yeah. You still want to go? Okay. Okay. The team was brought to the advance camp by Jeep and trailer. It gets worse. But the jungle through which the trail passed was on fire. Mm. (laughs) Lovely. (laughs) When when does this stop? It should have not happened. (laughs) They should have just stopped in the first place. They're just going through the jungle while the jungle's on fire. Because that's safe. That's a great idea. It happens sometimes. The fire was mainly confined to the dead vegetation on the ground and advanced slowly, but it would consume old and deteriorating trees such that there were numerous reports of large trees crashing to the ground. This fire continued until the rainy season. The normal drive of five and a half to six hours was prolonged to 12 and a half due to having to hack through newly fallen trees. Ouch. That sucks. Nothing of this entire thing doesn't suck. Yeah, pretty much. The investigation proceeded from August 24th until September 10th when the rain forced an immediate evacuation. They never did find the number two engine. It's not there. So, so what you're telling me is, is Nick lied again. Yes. Hey, hey, hey. You <laughs> lied. The entire power package okay. is gone. I think there should be an exception for the <laughs> Cruiser and its power packages because <laughs> this is a whole different thing. Anyways. I believe the airplane is probably still there. Oh, I'm sure. Because there is still... No, it's Good still, luck finding it's it. It's still the Amazon. However, there is a lot of, like, developed land around it. So maybe they've removed, like, a lot of it. But, like, there's a lot of farmland around there now where, where this happened. I'll take so it's not in the middle of nowhere anymore, but kind of. So let's finally start with the analysis. <laughs> We're most of the way through my notes already. I believe that. Examination of the wreckage proved difficult given the conditions, but also, here's the next most insane sentence. Examination of the wreckage proved difficult given the conditions, but also the Brazilians had, for sanitary reasons, taken flamethrowers to the wreckage after the bodies were removed. Wonderful. They just were like, oh, let's just burn the rest of it. I don't, I don't know. The train of Biohazard, I would think, maybe. Maybe, but. Why I'm, did you think flamethrowers were the answer? I'm thinking they'd figure, uh, we can just turn this to ash and trees will grow. Which is probably true. It probably happened, yes. Oh, and the forest fire also just swept over the wreckage at some point. So Yes, um, of course. We're doing great here, guys. Why are we still looking for it? Why are we still touching? Why are we even trying? Just stop. You're making a bad situation way worse. Yeah. Yeah. So investigators went through the flight plans and found that the planned altitude for the area was 14,500 feet with a heading of 343 degrees. Mm-hmm. The weather was not conducive to violent turbulence in the general area, but there was also a very long distance between weather stations. Such that a storm maybe could have popped up. Couldn't be ruled out. Okay. Couldn't be confirmed. Okay. No one knows. Okay. We're doing great here. The last message received was a routine position report with no evidence of impending disaster. But investigators also found there was an unsatisfactory radio reception in the area due to meteorological interference and a lack of radio stations. So it is entirely possible that there was an emergency message. It just was never received, heard, or understood. Yeah. Nobody got it, basically. At this point in the analysis, investigators point out that this particular model of aircraft had a um, problem propensity for losing engines due to a relatively minor damage on a propeller blade. No kidding. Relatively? We've talked about it. Maybe. We are aware of this propensity. Referred to like three, four episodes ago. I don't remember what it was. These failures were previously found to have all been the result of fatigue failure. Fatigue. Welcome back to the fatigue podcast. Yep. Whoop, whoop. It's been a while. (laughs) The possibility of the loss of an engine was supported by the conspicuous absence of the number two engine and propeller, otherwise known as the number two power package. (laughs) Back to the power package. 
Did you add that or did it actually say the power package? It did not say power package, but oh. I'm hailing back to the original <laughs> mention of the power package, which was the same aircraft type. So And airline. <laughs> and decade. Yeah, it's a bad time. In fact, the entire wreckage distribution itself supports this theory and that the aircraft broke up in flight at a moderately high altitude, like say their assigned altitude. Like say 14,500 feet. It's hard to say how soon after separation of the number two power package, the rest of the aircraft broke up. That would only be able to be determined if the number two power package was located. Which I wonder if they ever found it. No. They didn't? Not as far as I know. I feel like that That means it's somewhere still. It hit somebody's house. The Amazon is a very large place, though. Maybe the natives took it. I don't know. Who knows? But the circumstances indicate that the emergency most likely occurred with little to no warning and that the interval between separation and disintegration was extremely short. Investigators continued the analysis with a probable sequence of failure. One. The left side of the vertical stabilizer, the rudder, and the section aft of the number two nacelle were all covered in a thin film of engine oil. These pieces were also a little more scattered, indicating that the engine mount probably failed due to a high imbalance of forces which discharged oil from severed oil lines between the engine and the tank in the brief moment between severing and full separation. You know that, like, half a second. Yep. A trough-shaped depression was found on the leading edge of the dorsal fin by a relatively light object with a flat surface four inches wide that moved rearward after engine separation. Investigators determined it was most likely a piece of number two engine's cowling. That would make sense. Three, a small hole was punched in the skin of the right stabilizer and there was a tear in the fabric of the right elevator, but the tail as a whole did not bear any evidence of impact in flight from a large or heavy piece of aircraft, which makes it unlikely that the left wing and flat pieces passed rearward of the tail before separation. Anybody catch the fabric part? Yeah. I think that's interesting. So separation happened very close to the ground or the number one engine continued to propel the left wing forward after wing separation such that the wing and the tail did not collide. Yeah. Either could be true. Yeah, that is, you're right. Yes, either could be true. Four, the one bit of evidence that suggests the time between engine separation and disintegration was not immediate. The flaps were retracted for this aircraft, which was not usual for cruise flight. They actually usually had flaps out. Which is such a strange thing because we just wouldn't do that these days. This may have been an attempt by the crew to limit buffeting after the engine separated. Between, yeah, the buffeting thing. What they would use them for in flight and cruise flight is because the higher you fly with these airplanes, theoretically also the less airflow you have over them. I mean, yes, you're, you're trying to move as fast as you can in the most efficient way possible because you have less airflow because there's a lot less density. But the fact, that, the fact that flaps were retracted lends to the possibility that they had time to do so. Right. They were trying to maybe... That was about the only the thing that indicated they had time to do so. Yeah. Everything else says, nope, that that it, 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 it separated, and then the aircraft separated. Yeah. More analysis of the wreckage distribution suggests that the wings and tail separated at the same time. The location of some debris from the number two engine, such as the engine scoop and the intercooler, suggests that the left wing failed almost immediately after the engine separation, but this is more difficult to determine given the lift characteristics of wing components the potential continued thrust from engine one and the lack of known meteorological information in the area. Fair. So the last section was the list of possible causes of structural disintegration. Number one, explosion. There was no damage coming from a central point such as that. And this would also have propelled wreckage in a different pattern, which did not transpire. So no, not explosion. Yeah. Number two, sabotage. Again, a bomb was eliminated because there was no explosion. Fair. But any other form of sabotage could not be discounted. Technically, removing like a couple bolts here and Mm -hmm, there is sabotage. mm -hmm. Yep. There's no way they would be able to tell that. No. Number three, fatigue failure of the airframe. Such fatigue failure would occur in a heavy load-bearing member, such as a wing spar cap. But all such fracture points showed overload with no evidence of fatigue cracking. And the tension failure was directed upwards, such as would happen from excessive aerodynamic loads. There was at some point suspicion that the left nose wheel door detached due to fatigue and that hit the number two engine. But the fracture patterns on the remaining door fragments showed that the failure curled inward. And if the door had detached due to fatigue, it would have curled outward. Right. So it didn't fly off and was instead probably damaged by impact with terrain. Number four, fire in flight. This is a little harder to prove. Yeah. Considering how many fires this has gone through. (laughs) Unfortunately, yeah. Impact fire. Flamethrowers? Forest fire. Yeah. Basically, by the time we could figure that one out, it, it was already way, way too late. Way too late. Yep. 
Surprisingly, they had actually found some wreckage separate from the main wreckage that had no fire damage at all. Which does indicate... That there was no in-flight fire. Yeah. Nor do I think that was even really remotely an idea. When you're missing the number two engine, it's pretty obvious what happened. Yeah. Number five, hard over signal from the autopilot. This came up apparently at some point. I don't know why. The aircraft is certified such that a hard over signal from the autopilot would not cause loads in excess of the structural strength of the aircraft. No, it can't do that. Right. Number six, malfunctioning of the rudder boost system. I don't know. The valve for the system was found closed and is kept that way. Only an electrical signal could actually cause it to actuate. It cannot be physically activated otherwise. Fair enough. So not that either, in case you were wondering. Collision with a foreign object. We're on number seven now. It was speculated that when the propeller failed, it punctured the fuselage, which caused the weakening of the fuselage. If that had been the case, the fuselage would have separated and torn apart directly next to the engine. This did not happen. Mm -hmm. So, no, the propeller did not puncture the fuselage, nor did it sever the control cables, as was also suggested. Nope. A bird strike was also considered, but there's no evidence on the airframe or windshield of that. Furthermore, birds native to the area don't usually fly at 14,000 feet. Right. Usually. Also, without the number two engine propeller, that's what it probably would have struck, if anything, to cause the bird strike. But there's no way because you didn't you wouldn't know because you didn't have the engine. And, and and last potential cause of structural disintegration. Eight, buffeting and or flutter. Let me summarize three pages of analysis. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that probably happened. Yes. When you lost an engine. You would encounter fluttering and buffering. Turns out things are a little out of balance now. They took three pages to say that. The normally taciturn CAB investigators. Yes. So that's all I got. Okay. Good God. Yeah, it's pretty obvious what happened, though. Because, unfortunately, this was a pattern. This was not the first. When you have a pattern. Nor would it be the last. (laughs) When you have a pattern, there's a problem. Yep. (laughs) This whole aircraft is a problem. It was. Especially for Pan Am. In the 50s. Well, we're going to take a brief break. And then we're going to do a very brief second part. Okay, we're back. When I said that the second part's going to be short, I was not kidding. There are six findings. Oh. And they take up like a third of a page. Hmm. Hey, I'd rather that than like 56 findings. Yeah, but the CAB did as the CAB do. Except for the three pages analyzing one thing. Yeah, but each one of these is a very short sentence. So I'm going to read these out, right? And then we're going to do the probable cause, and then I guess we're just going to talk about this again. (laughs) For the third time. (laughs) In like a month and a half. Yeah. They found that the carrier, the aircraft, and the crew were properly certificated. There's that word again. They found that the flight was operating under VFR conditions, and weather is not considered a contributing factor. They literally had a whole paragraph about the en route weather at the very end of the story, the history of Why? flight. Why? I not don't know. Pertinent. Exactly. They put a whole big giant paragraph at the end of the history of flight after the whole accident and everything, and they were like, the en route weather was blah, 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 blah. And I was like, this doesn't belong here. They found that the flight was routine to the Abim Barreras checkpoint where it reported at an altitude of 14,500 feet. They found that the number two engine and propeller separated from the aircraft in flight. They found that the aircraft, for reasons undetermined, became uncontrollable following the separation of the number two engine and propeller, resulting in the loss of the left wing and the tail assembly. And last but not least, they found that there was no evidence of a fire in flight. That's good. The probable cause. The board determines that the probable cause of this accident was the separation of the number two engine and propeller from the aircraft due to highly unbalanced forces, followed by uncontrollability and disintegration of the aircraft for reasons undetermined. Yeah. As is the way with the strato cruisers falling into places that they can't get to, i.e. the water or the Amazon. (laughs) The fact that they were able to find out as much as they did given the wreckage location and the three separate fires it had to endure. Yeah. I'm pretty proud of them. I mean, yes. Good job. But also, maybe, maybe. Maybe don't take a flamethrower to the wreckage? Well, there's that too. But no, maybe. I mean, it was a good thing that the jet age came about when it did, because then the Stratocruiser was put to an end faster than most, which needed to happen. But also, maybe, maybe after the airplane, you know, fell into places you can't get to, More than once, as a matter of fact, maybe even one time, maybe the airplane shouldn't be flying over places you can't get to, should something happen. Yeah. They should have been flying these over, I don't know, what we would consider congested areas. Not that it's necessarily the best idea to be putting the airplane down in like a city, 
or a town, but maybe it should be flying a little bit closer to them yeah. <laughs> than being 1,100 miles away from land or in the middle of the freaking Amazon where you can't get to it. Because for some reason, Pan Am and the Stratocruisers in the 1950s had a habit of disappearing into nowhere. Into the unknown. Into <laughs> the unknown. Making it pretty much impossible to do an investigation on any one of these in particular. Every single one of these has been like, mm, yeah, we have a theory. Yeah, because there's no <laughs> way we can figure out our theory. It's not right. like they had simulators back then. Right. And they were like, mm, we've had some other like near-miss incidents of things like this happening. But mm, yeah, these ones were probably caused by the same thing. We just don't know because mm, we don't have the airplane. But we, we also couldn't find this engine. So, right. So, you know, uh, yeah. So that part is just wild to me. We have such a way lower tolerance for safety issues in aviation compared to the 1950s. Yeah. And the Stratocruiser. If something like that happened with a Stratocruiser twice. Today? Today. Grounded. Much, much like the Max. Um, not only grounded, but probably out of production. Yeah. Like, seriously, like, done. So These I, were not going well. I pulled up the coordinates provided by the Wikipedia page. It's still technically in the jungle, but when you said that there's farmland, it's, like, right there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's so all right I'm there. So I'm sure developed. the wreckage has been cleared at this point. Oh, yeah, it's pretty close. I, I think you'd be surprised. Most of it's probably still sitting in the dirt underneath that. Because who cares? A lot of it's probably been cleared away, yes, but most of it was burned. So the rest of it's probably just sitting in the dirt. There, there's no crater of it now, unless that's that. You're not going to be able to tell, probably. Obviously, everything has changed since then. Everything. I mean, we already had and we've already talked about, about this like a month ago. Yeah, we've already talked about why this in particular won't happen again. And power packages. Don't, you don't. You mean you don't fly Stratocruisers? No, no, no. They were, again, though, their safety record necessarily at the time wasn't actually the worst. It was pretty bad. That's pretty bad. It was pretty bad, but there were a lot of them. And they flew quite a bit, and they weren't very good airplanes, but there were worse safety records throughout history, actually. We just get to talk about these because, unfortunately, when the Stratocruiser had problems, it was catastrophic, quite literally. Apparently, there's an airworthy one on Long Island. Yes, actually, I knew that. I mean, and I mean, again, I'm sure you can fly it like well, for historic flights and stuff, but yes. like it's not going to be used for passenger use. No, but again, they also became... The Guppy. Yes. Family. But I... Which were turbine-driven, which helped a lot when you change the power package out for turbines rather than piston. There's a lot less moving parts. Uh, this a lot is less weird. weight. Guess how many Boeing Stratocruisers were built? How many? Ten. Fifty-six. Oh. Yeah. And we've covered three of them. Yes. God, that's such an ugly aircraft. Like seven or eight of them were Guppies. Or ten. Or something like that. Turned into guppies. I I'm say. on the simpleflying.com page for it and says the Stratocruiser was expensive to operate and had propeller problems. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Turns out yes. a lot of propeller problems. Yeah, absolutely. And one of them still lives here in Colorado in half. In half. Yeah. You've the been restaurant. to it. The restaurant. Oh, I haven't been to it. The res the airplane restaurant in Colorado Springs? Oh, 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 oh. The one with the potatoes? Yeah, 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 you're right. You're right. <laughs> that is a Stratocruiser. I've sat half. in it, yeah. That is half of a Stratocruiser. It's actually like two-thirds of a Stratocruiser. It's missing a wing. It's a restaurant. Yeah. Oh, by the way, this was the worst of all accidents involving the Stratocruiser. At, at the time, this was the deadliest accident. The worst incident of many involving the 377 occurred on April 29th, 1952, while flying over the Amazon between Buenos Aires and New York. The plane had taken off from Rio for Port of Spain when it suddenly disappeared, killing all 50 passengers and crew. Also, this was the deadliest accident at the time. Of course it was. Oh, well... And then, because it was one of the largest airliners flying at the time. The 377 Stratocruiser would go down mm -hmm. in history. Ha! Ugh. That's terrible. As one of Boeing's few major commercial flops. Yes. And yet somehow became the Guppy and was a very successful carrier. And still, there's still one of them flying. It's wild. Yeah, if you just Google the Stratocruiser, it's like, Jumbo Stratocruiser of the 50s was a mechanical nightmare. Oh my god, yes. Because it was a mechanical nightmare. Well, that's because we quickly found out that putting that many pistons on an airplane was maybe not a good idea. Yeah, yeah. That's too many moving parts, too many chances for things to go wrong, and also very heavy and super maintenance heavy. Like, super maintenance Well, when heavy. you have stuff that moves around like that, the fatigue happens so fast. Popping, burning, lots of pistons, lots of cranking, lots of sounds and things going the whole time. How's that going? Horrible. Bum, 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 bum. Horrible airplanes, to be honest. In the modern day, we would never, ever, ever fly these as passenger aircraft. Oh, no. Ever. No, 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 no. And the flying public would never get on it. No. 
the time, like this was like, yeah, this it is took gonna, me a lot to get back cool. on a Max after they were certified. They're actually pretty cool, though. They are really nice. <laughs> <laughs> actually, they are really nice. I want to know. Whereas the Strato Cruiser was like had a lot of accidents. Yeah, but it would I had take a, a lounge. To, yeah, but it would take a lot to get back on them, and so much so that actually they weren't worth it. Like <laughs> they were just they were still a sucky airplane after that. They had a lounge, but so did a DC-6, and a DC-6 was more reliable and a better airplane. So Was it as big? Yeah. Oh. Actually. I, I think it actually held more people. I didn't think the DC-6 was that big. Guys, the Pan Am Museum doesn't even have one. Wow. They, they had hey, uh, Can you blame them? <laughs> they, they did not have a good history with them. If anybody, they probably were like, no, we don't want to do yeah, it. Yeah, no. Don't want to talk about it. Don't, don't want to talk, talk about it. We don't talk about Bruno. I'm trying to find where we can go see one whole. I don't know if we if there is one. No one has a concise list. I mean, we can just go to the airplane restaurant in the springs. I mean, yeah. yeah. We, we can just look at it on the outside. We don't have to go in and eat because it sucks. They have I a trainer for it at San Diego Air and Space Museum. Supposedly there's one at an Israeli Air Force Museum. Yeah, how the hell are we going to get there? Yeah, that's a whole thing. You want to talk about impossible. Of course, you can see more than a whole one when you go see the guppies. There are several. I've been in one, but it's yes. it's not it's not the same. It's not the Strato Cruiser. If anywhere, I wonder. I would think. Well, no, I know they have another guppy at Pima Air Museum, but I would Where's think that? that's in Tucson. Oh, Arizona. Yeah. Is that the one where that has the desert that you can go see? Yeah. That is also there. That is a hard thing to go and do the big giant desert graveyard for the Air Force. Um, they used to do. Well, like, I thought that they had. No, I mean like. I thought there was an air museum in Tucson. Yeah, it's the that's the that, Pima Air Museum that has a section that's in the desert. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's correct. Isn't that's that the Pima attached? Yeah, that's part of the museum. Yeah, I thought they so. have that too. But that's across, uh, like across the way, is also yeah. the Air Force Museum or not Air Force Museum, Air Force Graveyard, which is enormous. There are two whole ones. Oh, we can see at Pima, and I can see that on a map. Oh, cause they're freaking huge. They're they're huge. And they're also bulbous. Yeah, they are the round. front end are round. Yeah. <laughs> they are round. They are quite obvious. But yeah, there's two of them we can go and see at Pima that are whole. As well as a guppy. There's also a guppy separate from that. Which Don't they still use guppies? There's one. NASA has one that flies. Most of them have been retired. Most were scrapped. Aren't they made for like airplane parts? They were made for Airbus. Yeah. Which is ironic. super ironic. But now they have the beluga, right? Yeah. Now they have the beluga. But before they had the beluga, they which had was the guppies. The, the, so, okay, life cycle. I guess we'll go on a small tangent about this just to fill some time. This is just hilarious. So hilarious. And we don't talk about this much in aviation about how just absolutely hilarious this is. Airbus being one of the largest aircraft manufacturers on the planet now. Didn't used to be, of course. 1970s, early 1980s. They started coming about. They decided we're going to build the A300, their first airliner. This was going to be a huge thing. It was a, a wide body aircraft from scratch. Air Force Museum in Dayton, Ohio. Yes, probably has one. Has the militarized version. Yes. One of these is definitely military. Actually, both of these are probably militarized in Pima. I as well. want a civilian one. Good I luck. don't think you'd be able to see a civilian one. One of these might be civilian. One of these, nope, they're both military. <laughs> it says USAF on one wing and it has a big red cross on the other. Anyways, so. Airbus decided they were going to build the A300. It was super ambitious. People were like, never heard of this company before. They're going to build a wide body from scratch, a twin wide body, which the airlines were like, we want that. We want to stop flying three and four engine aircraft. But the problem was, is that they like the ETOPS rating didn't exist for twin engine airplanes. It was not a thing. So the world was like, yeah, we'll believe it when we see it. But American being American put in a giant order for them. And so Airbus went to work building this thing. And they were like, well, we have a problem because we want to build some of it in France and we want to build some of it in Germany and we need to move it. And it is very large. They started moving them on barges and then there were a bunch of stratocruisers available that were turbinated. <laughs> that were turbinated. With turbinators. We're <laughs> <laughs> adults. And they were like, hey, that might be really convenient because actually these things with the turbine engines can hold a lot of freaking weight. They can carry so much. They just need a bigger fuselage. So they made them look really stupid. <laughs> <laughs> they do look Even really more stupid. stupid than they did originally. 
To be fair, the beluga looks pretty stupid too. We give it a lot the of hate. The beluga is beautiful. It we looks give it, like an actual whale. Okay, understand. We give it a lot of hate, but the beluga is actually a really cool airplane. Like, it who is, gives it hate? It is a beautiful creation. Arguably the ugliest thing that's ever existed in aviation. <laughs> the guppy is so much worse. <laughs> the guppy is so so much worse. The guppy is so horrible. So the strato cruiser on its own is an ugly aircraft. Yeah. Uh, the guppy the is guppy 10 times is worse. The so ugly. It's so ugly. The guppy. So they built the guppy, which was a Boeing airplane that they modified to haul parts for their new airplane for the Airbus, which eventually became the A300, which eventually became the Beluga and replaced the guppy. Why do we name them after fish? And the or, Beluga. Or, uh, aquatic animals. I don't. Because no. they look like them. That's yeah. why. Because some fish look stupid. And so do airplanes. So do some airplanes. So do some airplanes. <laughs> I'm insulted on behalf of the ocean. There are also aircraft named after like decent looking fish. I can't name one of them, but there yeah, are. Like the beluga looks just as stupid as the guppy. It yeah. doesn't look stupid. I don't think it looks quite as bad it as looks the guppy, but bad. it's pretty bad. And then there's the beluga XL now. So the beluga was built to now create parts for the A330 which eventually became the Beluga XL. <laughs> which looks even stupider than the Beluga. The Beluga itself actually yeah. doesn't look that bad because it's not that big, but the XL looks like it's a whale gigantic. got hit in the forehead and grew a bump. Yeah. <laughs> That's what Belugas look like. You've seen Belugas in person. Yes. Their their foreheads are not that fat. <laughs> yes, they are. No, they're not. If it has to be called an XL. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so sorry for our tangent. We're having fun, though. Go look at the Boeing Dreamlifter. Oh, God. You know what aircrafts used to transport aircraft that didn't look stupid? That looked pretty stupid, too. Yeah, they, they took a 747 and literally it looks like somebody just <laughs> like... What, what it looks like is like, you know, when you take a, a one of those long balloons... And you inflate it like three quarters of the way, but the end is still like not inflated and the other end is not inflated. Yeah. That's what a 747 Dreamlifter looks yeah, like. Yeah, it does. It looks like somebody half inflated the airplane. The end is not inflated on either end. Anyway, the point I was trying to make is yes. rest in peace to the Antonov 225. Yes, that too. That was not a bad looking airplane, though. That was a nice looking airplane. That was a nice looking airplane. It was quite, quite a nice It is dead. Sadly, yes, at least for the time being. Well, anyway, I don't really have much. Yeah, <laughs> anyway. there's not much else to talk about. What changed? Uh, poof. Everything. Uh, yeah, that we no longer <laughs> fly the Stratocruisers. Stratocruisers, because that was a stupid idea. That's all they had at the time, though. I mean, that was one of the many things they had at the time, but yeah, it wasn't a good one. Thank you for joining us on this adventure of Jaguars, Boa Constrictors, Wild Bowlers, and Flamethrowers. Thanks. It was a tragedy. I'm not going to take away from oh, that. Oh, yes. But the Stratocruiser. And Pan Am and bad history, packages. power packages, bad history. All of those, all of the above. Yes, we are uh, done with the saga. Yes, there's For no, now. There, there weren't enough strato cruisers built, <laughs> and there were so many of them that did not have a good time. Had a horrible time. That there's nothing else to talk about in the strato cruiser world. <laughs> so, if you find one, please don't. But, uh, you can, but I mean, I good luck. I think we've talked about them all now. Yeah, as far as we know. Yeah. Dun, dun, dun. Okay, you know what time it is? It's time to give us your money. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> just kidding. You should check out the Patreon page, though, to see everything that's included. You know, if you'd like to see, you know, you don't even have to contribute if you don't want to. Yeah. But if you have strong feelings <laughs> about it, you should <laughs> do that because it helps out the podcast. It helps keep us going because all of that money turns back into the podcast. Like, we we really don't benefit from that money we uh, also forget to pay ourselves so really we don't pay ourselves no no we use that to like go on trips to meet you guys or like if we meet patrons we'll usually you know like be nice and buy you guys a meal or whatever yeah but it also just pays for the podcast right yeah, it, it pays it does our editing software it paid for our soundboard and sound system yeah it pays for the website it pays for everything what you're so. doing goes 
literally pretty much entirely back into the podcast. That's it. Yeah. That's that's all that money does. That's so all, literally all that if money. If you does. decide to contribute, we really do appreciate it. If yes. you don't, listening is just enough. You know, it's great. Thank you so much. Yep. Uh share us with your friends and family and also, your weird coworkers that have your same weird morbid curiosities you do. <laughs> yes, that is true. Also, January and February is decent traveling time. So if you find yourself in Denver, like one of our patrons will. Yes. Come hang out with us. Yeah. Um, One of our patrons from Germany is coming to stay with us for a week. Mm -hmm. We will be taking advantage of this in February, though, and we have our own trip planned. But come hang out with us. We're fun. Yes. As long as I'm not freaking out about wedding planning. Whoop, whoop. We're fine. Okay. That being said. Post episode uh, time. Yeah. So we're going to talk about Christy's uh, adventure to the Bahamas in a post episode. Maybe I'll talk about more ugly airplanes because I've got ugly airplanes we can talk about. Dude, there's so many ugly airplanes. Oh, my God. There's so many. I'm going to talk about nice airplanes that Nick hasn't gotten to fly on. I'm going to hold that over your head as long as I can. That's that's fine. It's not, you know, it's not like spectacularly different than something else I've Listen, never let me on. have this. But yes, enjoy. Sure. For as long as you want. I don't care. Yeah. So if you want to check that out, guess what? You got to be a patron. Yeah. So go ahead and check that out. Thank you so much for listening. We hope you have a safe and healthy week and we'll catch you all next week. Keep, Keep your speed up. up. Please like and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Hard Landings Podcast and on Twitter at Hard Landings Pod. Subscribe and leave a five-star review on the platform you are using to listen. If you would like to see photos and sources for this episode, please visit us at hardlandingspodcast.com where you can also leave us feedback and ask questions. This episode was researched and written by Nick and Christy. Our theme song was written by Miranda and performed by all three of us plus Leo. And our logo is by Naomi. Thanks for listening. Catch you next time.